Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the PropG podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. There are many different paths you can take. But there's only one road to Atlanta. The high drive deep out to left field. He clubbed it. Brady twisting and turning, looking up and giving up. It's a home run for Danby Swanson. Flair out towards shallow right. That's big trouble. Albies going back. He dives and he makes the catch. What a play, Ozzie Albies. Swanson is headed for three. He'll try for an inside the Parker. Relay throw comes toward the plate. He'll score standing, and it's his second inside the park home run of the season. This is your weekly podcast dedicated to the Atlanta Braves farm system. Follow the show on Twitter at Road the Number Two Atlanta. Now hit the road with your hosts Eric Cole, Gaurav Vidak, and Garrett Spain. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Road to Atlanta, a podcast devoted solely to the Braves farm system and Braves prospects. I am one of your hosts, Eric Cole. You may recognize me from my work over on Talking Chop for the past five seasons, where I've been writing about the minor leagues to start off with. Now I'm kind of taking on more roles as the deputy site manager and the minor league editor, where I kind of do a little bit of both. But more minor league, that's kind of where my heart is. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Leprechaun with a K, where I talk tweet about the minor leagues, the major leagues, and basically whatever is bothering me at any given moment in time. Joining me this week is one Matt Powers. You can follow him over at Matt Powers 31 How are you, buddy? I'm great. I'm heading to New York tomorrow to see a couple of Braves games against the Mets. Soroka versus Maple Maddox versus DeGrom tomorrow night. And I've got front row seats. That's awesome, dude. Seriously. Like, uh, it's a little known fact, and we've been trying to get Matt to move down to the state of Georgia, and there's been some preliminary things in the works to kind of help make that happen. But Matt's actually from Pittsburgh. Or the, the Pittsburgh area. No, no, Scrant, Scranton area. Oh, Scranton area. I'm, I apologies. But in Pennsylvania, kind of one of those, you know, TBS superstation kids that, you know, experienced the Braves when they were a nationwide team. And now he has been fortunate enough where he can kind of see some of the, the affiliates that we don't get to see as often, going to see Syracuse, going to Syracuse, going to other games where he can kind of see some of the Braves affiliates that we can't see on a, on the regular or seeing matchups that we want to see. But it also means in his case that he gets to go to New York and hang out with, um, you know, hang out with, I believe, Garav, who's, uh, he will not be here this week. He's actually traveling to New York. He's going to, uh, Matt's going to meet up with Garav and they're going to, you know, see a Mets game and they're going to enjoy themselves. Uh, whereas, I'm simply stuck here in the state of Georgia, and uh, I'm actually enjoying myself kind of trying to have a little bit of downtime. i am been kind of fried last, from the last few weeks. I think the draft did more damage to me than I anticipated it was going to. But we're going to do this show every week, and I've, I have committed to that. And I also enjoy doing it. It's kind of a nice little time where I can kind of talk things out that are kind of on my mind. Um, before we kind of get into the recap of what's been going on in the minor leagues, as well as kind of covering the two topics we're going to be discussing this week, uh, keep in mind, during the All-Star break, our top 30 prospects list, the mid-season update for Talking Chop, will be rolling out. Uh, it'll be, it's going to be a very different prospect list for us. There's, gonna be so, there's been a lot of graduations that we're going to have to account for, plus there's the, the draft class that we're going to have the wedge guys in. So those two things combined means there's going to be a lot of new names, uh, a lot of shuffling is happening. I know I'm struggling a lot with this list, and I know several of the other guys are struggling as well. So 
I'm interested to see kind of how that shakes out in terms of where we end up putting guys and slotting guys and the guys we get to talk about. But before we kind of get into the two big topics, just a quick recap. Uh, short season ball started, Matt, and I'm pretty excited. Um, before I kind of get into the full season ball guys, because I think that I'm more versed, I've, I've seen those guys live. Uh, talk to me a little bit about some of these guys that are in short season ball, particularly these Dan- guys in Danville who have been really good. Bryce Ball, Willie Carter, and Cody Milligan. So Bryce Ball is the star, obviously, so far to this point of the year. I mean, he won the Appy League Player of the Week for his first week. He started out with two hits, two hits, two hits, one hit, then three hits in his first five games, another hit in the next game. Yesterday was the first and only time he went hitless and he drew a walk. So every single game he's played, he's reached base. He's 11 for 25. He's hitting 440 with a 1380 OPS, three homers in just 25 at-bats so far. And he's only struck out four times, so it's not like he's hitting and striking out just as many times. But he... He's a really big kid. He's listed at 6'6", 235, and he is almost every bit of that if he's not that. I mean, if he's shorter than 6'5", I'd be shocked. He started out at a small junior college in his home state of Iowa, spent two years there, made his Division One debut this year at Dallas Baptist, which has quickly become a school that really churns out pro players at a very, very high rate. They haven't really produced too many very high picks yet, but they, if you look on baseball reference for Dallas Baptist in the results, they produce multiple pros every single year, maybe two or three dozen over the last five to ten years or so. I mean, every year it's just multiple guys and they're always seem like they're a number one or number two seed in the tournament at least for regional, I should say. Uh, just a really promising hitter. And then there's Willie Carter, a kid who came out of a small NAIA school in Florida. He's got maybe plus power, maybe double plus power, possibly somewhere in between. He's got some speed, some running ability. He can has a big arm as well. Obviously, there's a little bit of a jump in competition, but he's got an OPS um, just under 800, and I believe after yesterday, his average was over 300 on the year. I mean, despite his big jump up in competition, all he's done is hit. And then there's Cody Milligan, who is, I guess you want to call him the second baseman. He was a college catcher second baseman, so he's got that Greg Biggio to him, defensively at least. He's got some ability to hit the ball. He's got some developing power, possibly, even though he didn't really show it in Juco this year, but he's got that along with some speed. He would be a lot more interesting as a catcher, but even as an infielder, there's definitely something there to look at. I mean, those three guys are really the three guys on the Danville team that are worth watching, along with Bo Phillip, who had his first hit RBI and stolen base just yesterday, and I believe he has another hit again today. Yeah, all those guys have been really good. I do want to throw a shout-out to Mitch Stallings, who wasn't a draftee from this year. I know that people are really interested in the 2019 class, but Stallings is from the 2018 class, and he went, I think it was six innings and struck out 11 guys. That's 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 a big-time debut for in, in short season, even, even though it's in short season ball. That's a college arm, too. 
it's very possible that we could see him end up getting bumped to Rome before too long, especially on that Rome staff where it feels like they just need as much talent as they can get their hands on. And we are going to see some of these Danville guys uh, move up. And the, th- the three guys that we mentioned, uh, Cody Milgan's line's kind of gone down a bit since he kind of started off really hot. But again, we're kind of dealing with small sample sizes and we're kind of, we kind of like what we see in the short term. This is kind of guys that we've heard a little few things about. But the three guys we just mentioned, they're not top picks. I mean, we see the GCL with a lot of these guys that we were excited about in the on the high school side. They're starting on the GCL. They just started, and it's really impossible to you know draw any conclusions. Like for example, Stephen Paolini is a guy that we're intrigued by, but hasn't had the best start to the season yet. But the guys who are starting off well in Danville right now were the ninth round pick in Cody Milligan, who's again that's what that wasn't a big time money signing or anything like that. And then you have a twenty fourth round pick and a thirty fourth round pick. One of the things that you will know about this Braves scouting department, even though there have been changes, is that they seem to be, they remain to be very good at finding those diamonds in the rough in those, in those day three picks. And those are three guys that could have some real value. I mean, Ball's a first, a first base prospect in a system that doesn't have very many good ones. And then a second base prospect, uh, in Milligan, plus a Carter, an outfield prospect. And again, if the power projections turn out to be that what we hope they would be and he continues to hit, these are all things that we want in the lower minors right now because there's just not a lot of it there. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the 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 two big the two big names that everyone's going to ask about are Shea Langoliers and Braden Shoemake. I did leave off one of the GCL guys. I did just want to call out Von Grissom, who he has is, been good. Yeah, he's walked in every single game. He has two hits so far. And if you read my interview with him that came out this week, it was the day after he got drafted, but we timed it so it would come out right when he was debuting. I asked him, what was the one thing that you think you can work on the most? And he was smart enough to realize his own strengths and weaknesses and say he'd like to improve his speed. He always wanted to have game-changing speed to be able to steal 30 bags, and in his second game, he's already stolen a base. He's much more known for his bat than his speed at this point, but, I mean, he's a kid that's very intelligent, very skilled, played at a high level in high school, and seems to know what he can and can't do. Super athletic kid, too, and even though maybe he won't ever be like that plus or plus plus runner, if you have good instincts, if you can just, you know, have like a, you know, a 50 or a 55 run tool or something like that, you can do some damage on the base path, particularly in the minor leagues, where like if you can pick your spots and kind of terrorize an opposing pitcher to where he eventually just wants to leave you alone and then you can actually take a big jump. You're gonna, you can do some damage in the minor leagues. He's a guy that, uh, he was the Braves first pick that was coming on day three. And when you see a guy get picked that early on day three, that's kind of a, a little bit of a lottery ticket, but also a guy that you probably think the team probably thinks of highly coming out of the high school or college ranks that they kind of want to be able to throw some money at uh, without going too much into their bonus pool because everything over 125000 I think, is what counts towards your pool. So those are, those are not guys that you go, oh, he's only an 11th rounder. If he had been picked 7th, 6th round or something, he would have been more interesting. That's not really how it works given the current bonus pool structure. Um, but back on Langoliers and Shoemake, I was – I was very interested to see them these guys live. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to see Langoliers live. The night I went was a day that he was not catching. That he's been alternating time with Ricardo Rodriguez down there at Rome, but he's he's performed well so far. He's been he's been hitting there again. Not a not a big sample size to really work from yet, but I did get a chance to talk to him a little bit. Seems to have a really good head on his shoulders. It seems excited to be playing for the Braves and has a good, a good sense of kind of what he needs to work on. He's a guy that didn't call his own games in college. 
And but he did what he did do in college was that since his pitching coach was kind of over all of that, he made sure to grill his pitching coaches to kind of why those decisions were made uh, in certain situations, so that way he can kind of get into the program pro game with at least a base of knowledge to work from while he's while he's learning kind of how to be a game caller. But worked well behind the plate. Was really impressive in batting practice as well. Uh, it's it was kind of funny. His batting practices are like he seemed like he was just kind of hitting line drives all over. And I'm like, okay, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of pop in the bat, but nothing special. And then in his last round of batting, when he was turning on balls, he was putting them in trees. He was he he was actually pretty impressive. The guy that surprised me the most was Braden Shoemake because to be honest, I just expected a guy that was really polished and had a hit tool, but maybe wouldn't have a lot of power coming off his bat. I don't love the swing or the stance necessarily. I'm not a big guy on open stances because there's a lot of moving parts and it feels like it's open stances are generally adopted to try to get timing right. And it makes me feel like there could be timing issues down the road, but his was surprisingly good at kind of getting him square to where he could drive the ball and he was hitting the ball hard. He had a hit in the game that I hit and I watched and it was probably the weakest ball he hit the, it was just a grounder up the middle, but the other two were just line drives to dead center. It just happened to be right at the center fielder, and he's been hitting really well down in Rome, and it's been getting better and better as he's gone on. Again, we're dealing with a small sample size. We're dealing with low A, where these two guys that are from premier college conferences and like premier programs, where you expect them to hit in low A. But it's still it's still nice to see Shoemake hitting the ball hard, and you can see him maybe hitting for some power. And it's good to see Langoliers kind of doing good things down in Rome. How long they stay in Rome is an interesting question. Uh, I talked a little bit of Matt about this, and I'll throw it to him here in a second. But everything I heard is that right now all they want these guys to do is they're not trying to change anything about them. They just want them to get acclimated to pro ball. And that seems to tell me that they could be in Rome for a while because that keeps them close to Atlanta where they can get whatever resources they need, training or otherwise. If they're not putting a ton of stock in what develop, well, I say this. If they're not putting a ton of stock in like where they end up at the end of the year, then it seems like they could keep them at Rome for the rest of the year, give them a bunch of seasoning, make sure they're nice and comfortable, and kind of figure out what they have with them and then send them down the instructs. And from instructs, they can figure out, hey, do we need to make any changes to your swing or your approach or anything like that? Right now, they just want to get these guys comfortable. And it's pretty exciting. I I don't know. What are your thoughts, Matt? I think they should both be promoted fairly quickly. I mean, give them the first couple games which they've had. But specifically Shoemake, he came from the SEC, which is a much tougher conference overall than where Langoliers came from. And Shoemake has started every day for three years. You're not testing him in the Sally League. It's just not going to happen. He's faced better and more consistent competition in the SEC. Those SEC weekend starters versus Sally League starters, I mean, you take those college starters all the time. I mean, that's where you're going to face the guys like a Kumar Rocker, like anyone that's out there for LSU or Florida or the two Georgia arms who are both potential top five picks next year. I mean, those are the guys you're facing in the SEC. So for Shoemake to be in Rome right now is not really much of a test for him. I think he needs to be moved up to Florida, even though I'm not sure they want to put guys in Florida as a spot right now. But I think just as a general test for him, he needs to be moved up. Langoliers I'm a little less sure of because the Big 12 is also advanced competition, it's not quite the SEC, but it's pretty strong, and I think it's very comparable 
to the um, Sally League. I think he should probably be moved up, but maybe slower than what Shoemaker needs. I think Shoemaker's ready right now today to move up and get tested while when the leaders might be able to take a little bit more time before you actually push him. I'm all for giving catchers reps, period, especially when you're trying to I mean, it's not a question of him being able to control a running game or like do the mechanics of like, you know, pop and throw or, you know, being able to block pitches. It's not stuff like that. It's just the game calling stuff and getting familiar with like managing a pitching staff. I don't have any issues with maybe not moving a guy super quickly because you don't want to have a guy like up in like double A or triple A with only having like, you know, like 60 games of game calling experience and things like that. I would get a kind of a steady move for him. I, again, I, I, I understand where you're coming from, from the SEC stuff. If they just make the decision that, Hey, whatever this year is going to be, and they just have them at Rome so that way they can have them close so they can monitor things. I also understand that that way they can get personnel to see them at games and things like that. It does mean though that I would expect if they if they do this, if they just keep both these guys at Rome the whole year, I would expect aggressive promotions for both of them next year. Like, you know, just bypassing Florida altogether and just going to Mississippi and then seeing what happens because I agree that these are kind of two more advanced guys, but you can make it you can make a decision on that next year if you really feel like you need to test them. You can put them at Mississippi and or it's particularly in Shumik's case next year, and it doesn't feel like you're wasting too much time because in Florida it just I don't know Florida's kind of a mess in terms of you know between all the rainouts and the fact that the roster's kind of wonky and it doesn't seem to be a great test for how someone's going to do hitting wise there because it's a really pitcher friendly league and there's just it, there's a lot of irregularity. I could see the wisdom in keeping them in low A just to keep them on a steady playing schedule rather than kind of pushing them to Florida. I understand the, the the level of competition is probably going to be low for them, but I don't mind them experiencing some level of success if and if they decide to be aggressive later on. Uh, but they, I don't think that they should be like, especially Shoemaker's case where he should be like, you know, Rome for all this year and then Florida for all. He should move probably more quickly than that. Um, that kind of brings us to the draft signings. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but are we at 35 total members of the class that have signed? Uh, where we think pre, uh, Joey Esses has signed. I'm not 100% certain about that. Yes, yeah, this is signed. I'm getting that from some of his high school and travel teammates who have congratulated him on signing with the Braves. I have not seen the official. Um, let me actually check the official transactions again now just to make sure that he has... Yeah, we, don't, I don't, we don't have any bonus figures or anything like that, which actually matters in his case. They have not actually released that he's signed, but based on what his former teammates are saying to him and about him, it's pretty safe to say that he's signed at this point, officially. I mean, I can't see them making the statements, congratulations on signing with the Braves, if he has not signed with the Braves, and him to acknowledge those tweets. So, it's pretty safe to say he's signed, and now that Louisville is out of the College World Series. Well, the College World Series is over at this point, but Drew Campbell has signed, I believe. If he has not signed, he's going through his physical and getting signed at this point. I believe uh, he has changed his profile information to state that he is a member of the Atlanta Braves organization, so that's a good sign. Um, we did lose Anthony Hall. He was 
the high school player taken in, I want to see the 34th, 35th round. He was an uncommitted player. He missed all of last year with an injury and was limited to first base this year because of it. But he committed to the University of Oregon just the other day. So it doesn't look likely that he signs, even though I wouldn't rule it out. So he's pretty much just the second guy that has said definitely no. Riley King, the Georgia player, I don't really want to classify him as a position because he could play outfield, infield. There's really not a position for him, but he's already stated 100%. I will not sign right after the draft, so he's off the board. Really the only player left on the board worth watching at this point that I think has a chance to sign is Makai Backstrom. And I kind of think he signs based on what I've heard, but I don't think it's a definite at this point. I mean, he's in a very interesting spot. If he goes to school, he could come back in three years and be a first-round pick. Maybe a second-round pick. First-day pick for sure, I think. He's got that upside with that swing and with that power, and he's got some athleticism in there. He was a potential first-round pick heading into last summer, and he was on my list very high at that point. But he really struggled to start out the year, and I think it was a vision issue. And after he got that fixed, he really came on and started to hit a little bit more, and the Braves took him and are trying to give him some money now. And I know the Braves like him, and he's got a good relationship with the Braves. It's just a matter of, are you willing to take this money now, or are you going to bet on yourself to try to turn six-figure money into seven-figure money, but wait three years to do it? He would have been committed to Fresno State, who does happen to be losing a lot of guys. So he would step in immediately, but the lineup that he'd be in would be a little questionable in terms of lineup depth. So I'm not completely sure if they would be able to really make a big run next year unless him and a couple other guys really reach their ceilings next year. Yeah, everything we're hearing is it seems it's kind of like a coin flip as to whether or not he signs or not. I understand the wanting to bet on yourself if you have a like a really good, strong D1 commitment. It's hard for me. It, his profile is an interesting one because we love the bat. We really do want him in the organization. But the problem that I have with not signing is that he is already, he already has some question marks and the vision thing is a, is a, is something definitely worth noting. But in his case, does it make more sense to go, Hey, you know what? I believe in myself enough to where if I can hit in pro ball the way I think I can hit and perform the way I want to, it is feasible for him to in this, especially in this farm system to make a run through the minor leagues and get his hands on some real player development, real coaching, real hitting coaching, and kind of real information about himself. You don't want to necessarily get find yourself in a situation where you're going to be in college and maybe have a flaw that could be exposed, making it less likely for you to end up being a pro altogether. And you don't want to find yourself as a junior without having that kind of – especially if the Braves really think that they can make the most of him right now. I like the idea of him signing, but it's all about dollars and cents, and it's not as simple as just saying, hey, you know what, you you can be a pro right now or you can wait. He's making a life-changing decision, 
And it's not as simple as just he's being offered a million dollars. Why aren't you taking it? You're crazy. It's that it's in that few hundred thousand dollar range. We don't know exactly what Joey Estes was signed for, which makes a big difference as to how much he's kind of weighing in terms of is that going to be enough to feel like it, he won't regret this decision if going pro doesn't work out. And I do want to add one other thing. His high school teammate is also a very big prospect who graduated with him this year. He was a sixth-round pick by Cleveland. He was also committed to Fresno State with Mackay. So I think one of the things that was helping pull Mackay to Fresno was a player that he was high school teammates with who is no longer going to be at Fresno State since he signed with the Indians for... 230,000, Jordan Brown, a shortstop, really talented kid, but the only reason I bring him up is because that might play into Mackay's decision-making process. It's very possible. I mean, look, these decisions aren't made in vacuums. You know, it's best what's the family, it's best for, you know, like what, you know, who's going to be around for him to associate himself with and what organizations he want to be associated with. We think he likes the Braves and he has a good connection with them. And it's a tough choice. You know, we're going to find out soon enough. But, you know, again, it's about 50-50 with him. But overall, we're happy with the, we're the, the, with the, we're happy with the depth of the draft class. Uh, I would say that there's, uh, differences of opinion in terms of the top end of the draft class. But it's still kind of early just to make that assumption at all right now. It's nothing like, we're, we think that it's a, there's a total disaster afoot or that it's an absolute home run. They got, you know, the best two players in the draft or anything like that. But overall, 35 signings out of your, out of a draft class that gives you a lot of depth in your minor leagues particularly in the lower levels in short season ball with some interesting guys and some that seem like they could be potential breakout guys. We just have to kind of wait and see. Um, the, the draft signings was the kind of the big thing we wanted to talk about today, but after a short break, we're going to talk to you a little bit about kind of a fun topic that Matt and I wanted to banter a little bit about, which is our bigger, biggest uh, prospect evaluation misses over the years. Okay. We're back with our, uh, biggest prospect misses right now. And this is something that I've kind of, I, I've written about in the past before with guys that I feel like I have missed one way or the other on. This isn't just misses of, you know, I thought a guy was great and he ended up being bad or vice, uh, but it's also vice versa guys who I didn't, wasn't particularly high on and they ended up being performing really well. And I think that's an important part of understanding kind of, what we do over the course of time, things that we see that we like that ended up not being particularly good or kind of things, you know, ideas that we fall in love with or guys were just like, I just don't see it. And then they end up uh, overperforming expectations. So I'm going to, we're going to go back and forth here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and throw it to Matt first. Cause I, he, he and I actually share a name that we wanted to talk about, but, and you go ahead first and then I'll name a uh, show and share a name that I was wrong about. So my first guy that I was wrong about was Izzy Wilson. I like him before he ever debuted. Then he came over, skipped over the DSL, went right to the GCL, and as a 17-year-old, or is he a 16-year-old at the time, he led the GCL in home runs. So obviously the talent was there, and then he had some history of production. So obviously I was extremely high on him at the time, and I thought he was really going to end up being something. And that clearly did not happen since he was just released in the past 10 days or so at this point. So that one definitely hurts a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I'm a, I was always, a, I will say, kind of, I liked him as the periphery as a top 30 guy, a guy that had tools. And I, I mean, he was on my list too for this reasons that those tools 
are so enticing that you felt like if he could get the hit tool together that he could end up being, you know, a really like a, a big mover. We ranked him, uh, he ended up getting ranked a little higher than I think maybe he should end up being just because there's a kind of, there was a variance of opinions regarding those tools versus his production, uh, with me on the lower end and some of the other guys on the higher end. And it's the important lesson to be learned here with Izzy, who's been released, is that you can't ignore makeup and a willingness to be coached. And we, we, he was suspended early on in his minor league career. When you hear, when you hear him say things like, you know, I learned those lessons from the past, it kind of made us, the, the talent almost made us tune out what was kind of a low rumble of this guy might not have the makeup and the ability to be coached to, to make the most of his tools and, as this season went on, it became abundantly clear that you would struggle to find anyone who had played with him or was coached or, or, or who coached him who didn't have some level of difficulty in dealing with him. And that his promotion to Florida wasn't necessarily because he was, you know, they thought he was talented enough to be there, but maybe had more to do with the fact that they need to get him out of certain situations and trying to change that, trying trying to change his uh, surroundings to see if that would make a difference in terms of how he, how he was and whether or not he would start, you know, really making the most of all of his talent. And that's a tough thing for us to swallow because again, we we see the talent in terms of just a physical specimen, but you have to want it, you have to put in the work, and you have to be able to willing to listen to others. And in Izzy's case, it doesn't sound like that he was willing to do that, which is a shame because again, very talented guy that I think that the overall talent level was hurt by him leaving the system. But he didn't put the production on the field. He never, other than that that. His short in short bursts and in that stint in the GCL, he never was able to consistently put together production. Only in these short bursts that kind of kept teasing us, and that's ultimately on us. Um, a guy that I missed on, I was particularly high on Lucas Sims for a while. Uh, for those who have been following along, he, Lucas Sims was like a top five, top six prospect, one of the first prospects list we put out, and it was partially it was in large part due to his production uh, in Mississippi in 2015 and 2016. He got bumped up to Mississippi after that Carolina Mudcats uh, bus crash. He came back. They put him in the for Carolina for, a, I think, a few starts. I can't remember right offhand, but performed well in, for Mississippi, then went down to Mississippi. Then in 2016, we came back to Mississippi and was lights out there for you know that first half, those first, I think it was like you know 16 or 17 starts or something like that. And it was because you saw development in the breaking ball. You saw some development in the changeup and the fastball was having, getting a lot of downward run where he was getting a lot of like ground balls and he was getting a lot of really awkward swings and we're like, he's really putting it together. And I was blinded by that. I, you see, once you see put guys take steps forward, you almost take for granted that it's possible for them to take steps back. It's possible for them to become inconsistent with certain things. And then that's what happened in Lucas's case is that the secondaries weren't really there and the fastball stopped being, you know, certain have, having run on it and instead was just kind of this flat thing that he kind of threw in the mid nineties, which is fine, but you really need secondaries to kind of be able to get guys that aren't sitting on your fastball. Unfortunately, he's no longer with the Braves organization and I hope for the best for him when he's with, with the Reds. I, I truly hope that he does, well for himself, but he's a guy that ultimately you kind of fall in love with the, the possibilities, you know, coming out of Rome, going through, you know, coming back from the, you know, an injury in Carolina and really performing well in double A. But then you kind of see that it's very possible that those inconsistencies that you saw at times could actually end up being 
far worse for him, and that's what ended up happening. He's just ended up, and slowly he kept dropping off lists and dropping further and further, made his major league debut, and just largely struggled as a major leaguer, particularly with the Braves. So, um, who's your next guy? My next guy is a guy that I was wrong on in the opposite way, and I think a guy that you also have on your list is Johan Camargo. I did not expect him to be what he is today. I didn't really see all that much in him. I thought maybe he could be just a utility guy with a white bat, but I never saw this until it was already too late. And once he really started to come on, obviously I saw it at that point, but I was wrong for sure on him. So this is an interesting case because in terms of full season ball, Johan Camargo never posted an OPS above 700 until 2017 in Gwinnett. In in 2016, when he was with Mississippi, there were signs that you he was hitting for some more power. The home runs weren't necessarily there, but he was hitting a bunch more doubles. He was walking a little bit more. You kind of started seeing like he was hitting the ball harder. And I think that that speaks to what we were talking about earlier is that you can't only just see one segment and think that he's going to a guy's going to continue to progress upward in a certain way. You can't assume only based on numbers and only kind of based on production and your past biases that a guy can't improve in significant ways, particularly if you're looking at the whole the whole picture. When in in, in Johan's case, when he was at Mississippi, he was hitting the ball harder. There's no question. We were I remember us even talking about the fact like, wow, he's actually he actually had a good game. He had a couple doubles. He was hitting the ball hard. He looked good, but you know, we we had kind of assumed that he was just going to be a guy that could field, had a strong arm, but was going to be a light bat. What ended up happening in 2017 was that he uh, he uh, was hitting the ball really hard, hitting these tanks all of a sudden, and got called up to the major leagues, performed and performed well, and he's been in the major leagues ever since as a utility guy with some power and with the ability to hit the ball hard. Now, the new baseball certainly kind of helped him, but it's also been changes in like he's bulked up, he's put on some real strength, and he's... He changed some things about his game. He was walking. He's been, he walked more, especially last year. This year has been a little bit more of a mixed bag. And maybe it turns out that we were right in terms of, you know, his overall offensive profile, but not in terms of what tools he has available to him. Cause like we did not give him much credit in terms of, in terms of the power that he had, um, over the years. I, we, I think we had him in the top 30 once. Uh, and that was really early on when the system wasn't quite as good. And he was, he never cracked the top 30 again until he was a major leaguer. And that was just a miss. Um, a guy that I fell in love with early on when I was – this was before I really even was uh, writing – was Tommy LaStella. And I think it's the idea that you can fall in love with a hit tool, but it's important to understand – and it's actually hysterical now – that you have to wonder if he's going to be an impact bat. And until this year, he just was never an impact bat. He was just – you know, he was Tommy Singles. You know, he would walk some, but – and you know, defensively, he was, you know, doesn't have the greatest value. And it's one of the reasons why he's kind of, you know, moved around the major league so much up until he's finding his time in the Angels. Now he's hitting home runs all over the place, which if that doesn't tell you that there's something going on with the major league baseball, that's all you need to know. But he's also playing really well, too. It's that a hit tool where a guy's hitting 300 and he's walking some, a lot of people think that's just that, that that's enough. But you really do have to have an impact bat. And, you know, there's some things about his personality, too, in terms of how, how he operates as a player and as a person that have been, I think, off-putting at times. 
for uh, for teams and players and coaches and things like that. But the more important thing is that just because a guy you know has a bunch of hits when they're all singles and he doesn't profile as an impact bat, he really has to be good defensively or, or provide bat value on the base paths. And in Tommy's case, he was just a hitter and he just hit singles, and that has some value, but it really really limits your ceiling. Now again, it's hysterical now that this year of all years he's you know he's hitting all these home runs and like he might actually have a thirty home run year this year. But overall, his career to this point, like I love Tommy Lastella. I, I did too. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I was I extremely was high on him, and then of course I completely gave up on him. Gave up on him quickly too, and he was, he never hit poorly. It was just kind of like what you know he he only provides so much value. You're just like okay, he hit a single. What's next? And you know he wasn't a particularly great defender, and I don't know. It, 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 it's a funny story just because like I was enamored with him as a prospect. I'm like he has this great hit tool, and just yep. over time you realize like. What's this guy going to do in a game? It's very limiting. You know, he's he's not going to go four for five a ton, but he'll get a hit just about in every game. And, and it this, might... this is actually, just to bring this subject up again, this is why I was a little bit concerned with Shumik, because he's going to hit. I have no problem believing he's going to hit, but he doesn't have much speed value. He doesn't have much... He has a little defensive value. I don't see him sticking at shortstop. He doesn't have a ton of defensive value, and I don't think he has a ton of power. But unless they can unlock something on him like they did with Lustella, obviously not the Braves, but that was my biggest issue with the Shoemake pick, to really put a comparison to it. I can understand that. I think, I, from what I've seen, again, a very limited sample size of Shoemaker, I think he hits the ball harder than Lestella does, but it's an interesting comp just simply because you want to see an impact bat. And again, Lestella's gotten there. It took more longer than I think any of us thought, and maybe it's maybe more to do with the equipment that's being used rather than, you know, anything that he's doing differently. Um, I am interested to see where you go with this next name that you have on your list. Uh, so go ahead. Jason Hayward. I thought he was going to be a future Hall of Famer, and I was wrong, and I don't think I was completely wrong. I think injuries have really derailed him. I mean, I went to see him in one of his last minor league games. I think it was even a playoff game, and they were in Scranton, and they were playing the Yankees, and I remember hearing about this kid, Cano. Wait, not Cano, I was, uh, somebody else from the Yankees. Uh, anyway, um, back to Hayward, but he really started to look good early in the major leagues. He came in, hit that home run in his debut, and then San Francisco came, and he injured his thumb sliding into third base. And after that point, he was never the same player. I think Right after the thumb injury, they were saying that he, maybe it was even the winter after, they were saying he never regained full functionality of his thumb. It was never quite 100% in feeling and range of motion as it was before that slide into third base. So that slide into third base really did a number on his thumb. And even though he had some productive seasons after that, there was also the time that he got beamed in the face. And that was I brutal. think. I mean, that was ugly to watch. And you have to think, after getting hit in the face with the 90-some-mile-an-hour fastball, 
that has to do something to him mentally. And I mean, you can't blame him because if I was hit in the face with a 90 some mile an hour fastball, I would probably have the same reaction to facing other 90 some mile an hour fastballs in the future. But injuries have taken away what could have been an amazing career. What started out and looked like even before he started out as a future Hall of Famer. Injuries are an important note because I think, except with certain exceptions like pitchers' shoulders, a lot of people take for granted that a guy just gets hurt and he'll come back and he'll be just the same as he was. And it's just not what happens. In Hayward's case, if his, th- if his thumb – I mean, people have had thumb injuries, wrist injuries, you know, broken bones, things like that that don't – it's not just a matter of just, you know, you, it, it's not like an injured – like an injured list easy bake oven. You just put them back – you put them in there for however long, let them heal, and they come back and they're fine. Um an example on the other end of the spectrum where this was the case was Ronald Acuna Jr. I think people forget that his first year in Rome, he injured his thumb on a slide in the second, and he was in a cast for a long time. Like he came back like right before the, the Rome Rome's playoff run, and he's obviously been insane ever since. And it doesn't he hasn't shown any effects outwardly that, that that's a lingering problem. But injuries do take an effect. I will say with Hayward though, it's. He's still been a he's still been a very productive player and has had good years, and if that's a bad outcome for a first round pick, then I think people need to readjust their expectations. And expecting a guy to be one of the absolute greats based on uh, a minor league performance, it's just it, it happens so rarely. It just it, it, it's I a mean, really rare thing. He, he did also start out that way as a rookie. I mean, up until that slide, let me pull up his numbers right now. Those numbers were looking like... Uh, he's even had... Uh, I mean, his year, in, his year with the Cardinals before he signed with the Cubs was a really good year, too, and everyone's like, oh boy. he's and That's why he got paid that, that contract he got from the Cubs. Now, I think the Cubs may regret giving him that much money, but... You know, he's still been a productive player, but it, it also hasn't helped that I think that there was too many hands in terms of like trying to fix his swing, trying to make all these weird adjustments. And I think that all those changes to his swing kind of really messed him up. And now he's kind of in this weird spot offensively as a guy who can be streaky, but also like can get out of his swing and kind of get off his timing too. So, but one of the better defensive outfielders that we've seen in the major leagues over the last, you know, seven or eight years probably, um, especially as a right fielder. But, Here yeah, I mean, yeah what are the numbers? 880 OPS in his first month of play. Then he had a 1081 OPS in May in 2010. And then he gets hurt in June, early in June, and he had that 532 OPS that month came back. He had a couple of decent months after that, 915, 936 in July and August, 800 in September. But he was looking in those first two months, too, like a future superstar. He had 10 home runs and 38 RBIs through May of 2010. Well, and some of, some of that could be entry, and some of that could be a league adjusting to him and him not making the adjustments correctly that he needed to. And it, there's, I guess the point is, is that there's a lot of things that go into young players developing, right? Like it can be injuries. It can be making the wrong changes just as much as making the right ones. Because a lot of guys, they're like, oh, well, my timing's off. Well, I'll make this change in my swing or I'll I'll hold that in a certain different spot and things like that. And if it's not where their muscles are used to being and if it's not something where they're comfortable with but they feel like they have to do it anyway, they can teach themselves bad habits. 
And in Hayward's case, there are certainly some bad habits, but there's also been some injuries. I mean, again, he's been, he's missed time with stuff in the past and he's had things go wrong, which have, may have caused some changes to happen. And there's just a lot of things that go into it. It's not, it's, there's, again, like I said, there's no easy bake oven. There's no like recipe for success because all guys' bodies are different. All guys are different, you know, in terms of what works for them and what doesn't, how they see pitches, how they view themselves, how they view their approach. There's a lot that goes into it, and there's a lot of reasons. That's that's why evaluating prospects and following prospects is a recipe for disappointment. We are going to be wrong far more than we're going to be right. We love all these guys. We want them all to succeed. And right now there are guys we really like and that are never going to do anything in the major leagues. It's just a fact. And there are guys right now in the minor leagues that we don't think very much of that are going to end up being really good major leaguers because of a change they make, You know, whether it be getting stronger, whether it's a change to their swing, whether it's a change to their approach. There's a lot of things that can change. It's just what happens. And that's one of the things that makes it fun to do almost. I almost... In, I say enjoy, I use that word loosely, but it's interesting to me when guys that I like fail or a guy, when we're wrong is really interesting to me because I want to understand why. Because at least it gives me an under, it helps, to, it helps me give a better understanding as to what is going on in player development and in prospect evaluation. And I have no problems being wrong. You know, I, I put my opinion out there, it is what it is. Now there's some out there that seem to get off on when fo- folks get, are wrong, like look how wrong you were. But it's just using the best information we have available. And if you look at the top 25 prospect lists for Baseball America or MLB Pipeline or Keith Law or Fangraphs, you'll see a slew of guys who were supposed to have real star potential who never did anything or are bad players or and like fell off lists completely after that. I mean, there was a, the one example is you know, AJ Reed for the Astros a few years ago. He was a can't miss hitting prospect, and he's been passed by just about everybody on that. On that Astros roster, it's just what happens. And he was again, he was an advanced bat. It wasn't a guy that was in the low minors that was impressing everybody. It was a guy who was, you know, an advanced hitter who seemed to be poised for a breakout. And he hasn't, he hasn't been that. He just hasn't. Um, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go ahead and cover my last name. Uh, for those who have been following me along for a long time, know uh, Garrett and I's fascination with Connor Lean. Uh, Connor Lean is still in the Braves organization, and you will see stretches where you understand why we loved him so much. Has power, has speed, great arm in the outfield. We thought he could play all three outfield positions. And when he was in uh, Carolina specifically, this was before uh, the high A affiliate moved to Florida, uh, put together a, like one of the better 762 OPS years you'll ever see. Uh, was stealing bases. He had 34 stolen bases that year. Uh, slugging perception was only 415, but again, had over, like close to 40, I think, um, extra base hits that year in a year that, in a place that was pretty tough. Had a ton of outfield assists, and we thought he was poised for something. But there's one thing that you can never, ever discount completely, and that's a strikeout rate. Struck it 129 times in like 500 plate appearances that year or so. That problem did not get any better, particularly at Double A. This is his third year now at Double A. Still strikes out a ton. Has seen his playing time diminish over time. Um, this is right now he's poised to have a second straight year batting under 200. But again, had to, had 10 home runs this year, last year. Has seven home runs this year. You see it at times where you see that he is a guy that has real tools. That hit tool is a big one though, 
And if you want any more indictment as to the one, the, the one reason why you need to view a tip tool is because so many of your other tools just don't play at all if you can't hit the ball and make regular contact and have a poor approach at the plate. Uh, again, he's still a guy that has a ton of tools. And you'll and see he made stretches. it to AAA this yeah. year, finally. Yep, yeah, finally, uh, finally got bumped up to AAA. Uh, this, so he, I'm sorry, he did have the two years below a sub, sub 200 average. Had a sub 200 average in Mississippi, but he still got bumped up to, to AAA, uh, more out of need than anything else. He walks a decent bit. He, it's not, it's not a question of whether or not he can walk. It's just that hit tool. And I'm curious as to see what happens to him down the line. But right now that seems like a miss. He was a guy that was like, in the teens for us as a prospect, we were prepared that if he was really going to kind of do really well in Mississippi, that he was going to be a guy that you, we could like, you know, kind of do one of those Acuna like bets like we did, where we just bet him on the t- bet on him in the top ten and say, hey, here he comes, you know, this is the guy with all the tools in the world, he's finally coming coming together. It never happened. It just didn't, and it in fact got quite wor- quite a bit worse. Um, who's your last guy? Guy that I was the most wrong out of everyone in the Brave system that. Although my two biggest misses ever were both Yankees, which I'll just mention at the end of this, it was actually Jordan Schaefer. And it's hard to believe it was a dozen years ago when between high A and low A, he put up a line of 312, 374, 513, 49 doubles, 10 triples, 15 homers, 23 steals, 56 walks in the same year. I mean, those are just insane numbers. And he did that across two leagues as a 20 year old and spent most of that time in high A at the age of 20 and ended up getting a chance to go and perform in the AFL and he put up an 824 OPS in the AFL that year. So there was plenty of reason to buy in on him. Of course, he got popped for PEDs and then never really did much as a big leaguer. I mean, he stuck around for a very long time in the big leagues. I think he's around 450, 500 games played in the big leagues as of right now. He's back in the minors trying to use that outfield arm as a pitcher. But, I mean, this is a guy with about a 600 OPS as a big league outfielder. There's just no impact with him whatsoever other than some speed and defense. He just has done nothing at all with the bat. And this is a dozen years ago before I really knew as much as I do now about what I'm looking at. So I was just basing that off the numbers, but I was ready for him to really become some kind of a monster, and he didn't. Of course, the two biggest guys I was ever wrong about would be Aaron Judge, who I never thought would make it. Uh, even seeing him in AAA the year before he broke out, he made some changes that winter, and then Jesus Montero was sure he was going to make it, and he never did. But, yeah, Schaefer's my biggest Braves miss. My favorite was that Schaefer made the conversion to a pitcher. <laughs> I, like, I was like, I was so confused when I'm like, really? I mean, like, he had a strong arm, don't get me wrong, but I didn't think that was a... And, again, he made it further than I thought he would. Um, and, you know, there, there, there's a lot of guys throughout. I mean, it's not just Braves, you know, that, that have Braves guys who miss. There's just guys that you fall in love with, and then there's, you know... They just nothing happens for them in the major leagues, and that I always mourn when a young guy, regardless if it's not it's not just the Braves, a guy who's a really highly touted prospect who's really exciting and fun to watch, and it just doesn't happen for him. And it's just there's a lot of things that can go wrong, and I think that's the overall lesson I think from all this is that there's things that can go really right, and that's a lot of fun, and it's exciting when you see a guy who can kind of come out of nowhere and light the world on fire, but it's also 
it's sad when you see a guy who's super talented and he has a, maybe he has one flaw, but it's one of those flaws that you just can't get past, uh, or a guy that gets hurt and is never the same again. You know things like that. The minor leagues is just this grind, this meat grinder where you know it's paved by the you know careers of guys who had were loaded with talent, were first round picks, ton of athleticism. If you saw them, you're like, wow, this guy could be something special, and it just doesn't happen. And it's okay to be wrong about those guys. That's the joy in this is kind of seeing who makes it. It's the joy of seeing who can like persevere and kind of make the adjustments and continue to get better and then seeing the pinnacle of that. And that's the great thing about watching this young Braves team is that there, a lot of guys were, a lot of guys didn't make it. And it's just, it's just particularly true in the minor leagues. It's just going to happen. But the young guys who we've been following for a long time, whether it be Acuna, Albies, uh, Swanson to a lesser degree, just simply because he wasn't with the system, in the system quite as long. Uh, Austin Riley, Mike Soroka, the, the list goes on and on. We're seeing the fruits of a very good scouting department, uh, and hat tip to one Brian Bridges, who I miss very much, uh, and we appreciate very much all the work he did in putting together these draft classes, and we hope that the new scouting director, uh, and scouting department is as successful as he is, because he's one of the best talent evaluators I've ever met. It's that you see the fruits of that labor, and we're seeing guys like Drew Waters and Christian Pache continuing to get better. They still have flaws, absolutely, they do, and it's very possible that guys that are that ranked that highly and are that highly thought of won't make it. But we get to see the fruits of that labor in the major leagues right now, and you know, take joy in that and understand that it's okay to be wrong. That you're going to be wrong, you're going to be disappointed, but when you're right, it makes up for all that. Uh, I guess that was the kind of point of this whole thought exercise for Matt and I. So thank you very much, guys. For- I did want to point out um, Baseball America's announcement yesterday since we didn't talk about it. But because of everything going on with the international signings and just how messy that entire process is, I don't know if you saw this or not, or I'm sure you did, but Ben Badler wrote a couple pieces yesterday about this. They're worth reading, but he's no longer going to – provide the same coverage on international guys starting right now. They're not going to put out their top 30, top 50 prospects this year. International guys, they're going to wait and do something um, a couple of months down the road, just uh, more of a team Like a retrospective, card. right? Yeah, more of that team report card that they do. They're going to do it earlier. They're going to do it more detailed, but it's going to come much later than what you're normally expecting, which I have to say I do like that because the system is broken. I mean, the kids that are signing contracts and – well, not signing, agreeing to contracts right now are kids that are 12, 13, 14 years old that are being pursued at this point. I mean – we jokingly brought up Vladdy's little brother, who I think is eligible to sign in 2022 or 2023. I have no doubts that teams have seriously approached him about signing at this point. No doubts about that. So it is good to see that at least somebody that has a voice is able to step in and make some kind of a statement. I agree. I actually want to shout out some things that Ben Ben said about that. It was it's that these agreements with these super young guys. It's kind of altered how we can cover how anyone can cover the international free agent market. But also, it's just it's it the system, especially with the set bonus pool system, it hasn't worked as intended. And now we're kind of the teams use up all their money, and once they realize that all their money is 
used up because they've already made these agreements with these 13 and 14 year olds. We're seeing younger and younger players being scouted and something has to be fixed. Uh, I don't know if it's the, I don't even know if something that can wait until the next CBA. Um, more and more, I, I would prefer a different system that would be fairer to the players and would be more fruitful to the players. But I'm convinced more and more now that there just has to be international draft. I just think that there has to be one. I want there to be incentives and, you know, real money being given to these young guys who, because right now between the amateur draft, which, you know, there's some real money at the top of the draft, but, you know, a lot of these guys aren't making anything after the first round or two. So making sure there's a way that those players can be compensated, but also understanding that, I mean, this isn't just something that I want or that, you know, some guys want. It's, it seems like both the, the, the representatives for the players as well as the, the international scouts and just kind of the organizations right now. There's like, right now the system's broken. We're going to play the game because this is the game that has to be played. This is the game that's in front of us right now, but it's not working. And I, at this point, it just seems the most logical thing to point out or at least point towards is an international draft. It's been discussed in CBAs for the last two CBA negotiations at least um, in a serious fashion. And I sincerely hope that either a different system is put in place or one that will be, certainly be better than the one that's in place right now. And my my, my guess is that we're, we're much closer to an international draft now than we have probably ever been. Um, so unless you have anything else, Matt, are we good? That's all I have. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Make sure you're uh, listening to the show each week. If you want to make sure you're subscribed to this podcast, all you have to do is be subscribed to the Talking Chop podcast feed, uh, whether it be in iTunes, Stitcher, whatever your favorite favorite uh, uh, podcast purveyor may be. We're pretty sure we're on all the all the big ones. Uh, and if you subscribe to that feed, not only do you get to hear Brad Rowland uh, talking on the major league pro, uh, major league side, where I'm a fairly regular. Uh, contributor over there, but you also get this podcast. You'll get it every week. It'll be straight. It'll be straight onto your onto your feed, and you can listen to us each week. Make sure you're downloading the podcast, and make sure you're leaving reviews, uh, five star reviews for the podcast because that helps the the podcast increase its reach, and it really does help us expand things. And if you want to support the podcast, make sure you go to our Twitter account at Road the Number Two Atlanta. Um, we do have a Patreon set up if you want to support the podcast. Again, as much as five dollars a month. Over if, if a bunch of you guys who have been following along and want to support the podcast, if you guys all if if ten of you gave five dollars a month, we'd be absolutely thrilled. And if you don't want to give anything, it's not going to change anything. We're not going to go anywhere. We don't need to reach a certain level to kind of continue to exist. But we do want to continue to grow the podcast and maybe be able to do other trips and things like that. And that would uh, increasing our our support from the Patreon account would actually allow us to do that. So. If you can, consider it. If not, our feelings will not be hurt. We still love you all. We thank you all for all the support and listening for as long as you have. And until next time, guys, we'll see you on the road.